invite our friends who are headed to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church to be dismissed at this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary. If you would please turn over to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. This morning we get to see Jesus as the righteous judge. We step away from the Psalms of Korah, the sons of Korah, and into a psalm from Asaph, beginning in verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God has shown forth, may our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats from your out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and when you and you associate with adulterers, you let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I've kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God. Or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for how it challenges us. Father, thank you that you are a merciful God. Even in the midst of an announcement of judgment, calling us to repentance, supplying a way of salvation and deliverance. And we praise you for it in Jesus name. Amen. So this morning we have uh, the first in the book of Psalms, um, uh, a Psalm of Asaph. And so I want to take just a moment because we've not encountered him yet and kind of talk a little bit just about who Asaph is so that we can sort of wrap our minds around what he's saying and why he, he is saying what he is saying. So who, who was he? Asaph was a Levite. So he was from the tribe of Levi. So he was 
part of the tribes that would have led in worship at the temple. Uh, he would have been involved in the sacrificial system on some level. What we find out through the Old Testament, there are a couple of different Asaphs, but when you, um, but when you filter through the, this particular psalm, we see that he was the chief leader of the temple choir. Uh, he was also a poet. Uh, he was appointed by David to have this role. So when David was, he was alive when David was king. And when David was king, he was appointed this role of the chief choir leader, if you will, for the singing of God's praises at various and sundry times. A couple of texts, and, and you can turn there if, if you want to, but uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 29, uh, when they're kind of recounting, um, um, some of the history and some of the things that they need to do long after David's death. This is during the days of King Hezekiah. In verse 30, it says, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And so they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshiped. And so if you kind of want to give a bit of a modern frame of reference to Asaph, so just think of whoever your favorite singer is, like whoever you think the, the best is. And you're like, hey, we're going to sing some songs together. We're not singing any of this newfangled stuff that's just kind of a knockoff and isn't that great. We're going to go to the classics. We're going to go to the best. We're going to sing and just plug in who that is. Um, just for the, for the young ones in the room, if it's. Anybody after 1990, you're incorrect. Just want to throw that out there. You're wrong. Uh, as you start creeping back into the 70s and then the 60s and then the 50s, you're getting closer to probably right, whatever name that you had. So you need to sub that out. But Asaph's that guy. Like they get together and they're about to have this great celebration and they want to sing praises to God. And they say, hey, listen, I'll tell you what. The king himself is going to make a mandate. When we get ready to have this celebration, we're singing David's songs and we're singing Asaph's songs. That's, that's kind of a big deal. That's, that's what they did. Now, uh, if, 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 you're, if you turned back to Second Chronicles a few pages to the right, uh, go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 12, if you want to follow along. And so... They're getting ready to dedicate the wall. They've rebuilt the wall. They're rebuilding the, the, the temple. They're getting ready to walk through all of that kind of stuff. And they're appointing the different Levites and, and they're talking about the procedures of the temple and what that needs to look like and the, uh, the, the different people are coming in and the different people who are skilled with instruments and that sort of thing. And then toward the end of the chapter, chapter 12, beginning along about verse 44, it says, And on that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores of contribution, for the first feats and for the tithes, to gather them in from the fields of the cities, of the, of the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served, for they performed the worship of their God and the service of purification, together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and his son Solomon. So it's going all the way back to the commands that were given at that time. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving, to our God. And so uh, in Jewish history and in Jewish culture, when you think through the songs sung, the worship songs used, most readily you have the Psalms of David. 
David was a very skilled and gifted musician, very skilled and gifted poet. And we have a number of psalms from him in the Old Testament. But when David wanted to appoint someone to be the chief lead to help the entire nation of Israel worship rightly in the temple. He appointed Asaph. And he said, I want this guy to write our songs. I want this guy to lead in our singing. I want this guy to be out front when the whole nation comes together to worship the Lord. I can't impress upon you how big of a deal that is. That King David himself saw something in this man for him to be the chief music leader of national worship for Israel at the time of the building of the temple during the days of Solomon. So when the temple gets built, this guy needs to be the guy. And interestingly enough, we only have 12 Psalms of Asaph, just 12. Most scholars are certain that he wrote more than that. But what we have in the Old Testament, 12 Psalms of Asaph. Now, intriguing to me, we have one here, what we call Psalm 50, in book two. So we're in book two of the Psalms. This one lone Psalm of Asaph in book two. And then next time around, when we get to book three of the Psalms, starting in Psalm 73... We start book three, Psalm 73 through 83, with the next 11 psalms of Asaph that are in existence. He, he runs the whole first 11 psalms of book three. So why wouldn't they just put them all together? Why would it be structured like that? Why wouldn't we have like the Asaph song book? And then, you know, because the psalms are kind of ordered in an odd sort of way. This is not the point of the sermon today. But I want to make this point so you can file it away for when we get there later. They did not do writing and history and literature the way we do writing and history and literature today. In old and ancient times. They just didn't. There's a lot of complaints from modern critics about ancient texts, particularly ancient religious texts like the Bible. Look, they've pieced this stuff together. This stuff's clearly out of order. This is talking about some event that didn't quite happen the way that we think that it happened or that we know that it happened. Why would you, you know, the, and usually the accusation that gets made is, well, these people were just ignorant and they didn't understand stuff. And so they just did the best that they could with what they have. But they were primitives and that's just how it is. If you want to come with a presupposition that all people who lived a long time ago were dumb, then by all means, the next time you have to repair your roof after a mild hailstorm, just go on the Internet and look at the pyramids and see how great engineering used to be and how bad it is today. And go ahead and call those people primitive and stupid all you want to. I would like to take a different approach. They structured their literature with an end point in mind. So why would you take one single lone psalm of Asaph and isolate it here in book two? What we've seen so far with all these songs of the sons of Korah. Talking about the struggle that people have with idolatry, the struggle that people have with their enemies, the struggle that people have with the greatness of God, the, the hope that is the, the God's glory coming from Mount Zion and all the things that we've seen over the past several weeks. And then all of a sudden you have the song, Psalm of the Psalm, sons of Korah that we saw last time 
where they throw out this really challenging notion of everyone dies. If you weren't with us last week, you can go online and listen to the sermon. But it was just this very robust, just kind of almost dark and grave notion of, hey, the king and the servant, the rich and the poor, the smart and the, and the foolish, all of them face death. And you cannot avoid death everlastingly. And then we tied that to Jesus. And then we come off of that very grave, dark, foreboding psalm from the sons of Korah. And we move into a psalm from Asaph. One isolated psalm from Asaph. Now, just so that you know, every psalm that we have from Asaph, all 12 of them are judgment psalms. They all talk about the judgment of God. So we went from everyone dies, rich and poor, king and servant, wise and foolish. You cannot escape the death that is coming to those who've lived in rebellion against God into a judgment psalm. And we'll unpack it in just a minute from Asaph. And then we move into probably one of the two or three most famous, well-known psalms of David that exist. Psalm 51, which we'll deal with next week, where David is basically singing a confession of sin for his sin with Bathsheba. I want to contend that ancient writers weren't ridiculous, ignorant primitives. They pieced their writing together with a purpose in mind. Hey, let's sing a song about how the fact that everyone dies because of God's judgment. And then let's sing a song about how everyone must answer for their sin Under the judgment of God, but God offers hope of salvation. And then let's sing a song specifically from the king who should have fallen under the judgment of God because of his sin. And instead, God showed mercy on him because he repented. What a wonderful one, two, three setup that you have in the songbook. It's almost like they did it on purpose. Like with some intelligence and forethought about their design. Which is exactly what we see going on here. And so I just want to throw that out there. And when we get to book three, you'll see there's a weight of judgment in book three. And, and, and it's intentionally set up that way as well. And so let's walk through this psalm of Asaph together. So he starts with a very unusual and unique phrase. The mighty one, God, the Lord. So we're Bible drilling today. So flip back a few pages to to Joshua. Flip back a few pages to Joshua. Joshua chapter 22. It's an interesting story. Joshua chapter 22. And... I have listed there for you verse 32, but we're, we're going to, it's verse 22 is the main point, but we want to go all the way through the whole story. And so what's happening here is the sin of Achan had happened. God's judgment and wrath had fallen on them. There was a declaration that worship should have been done a certain kind of way. And then the sons of Reuben had built an altar on the opposite side of the river And there was this coming against them and making a a challenge against them of saying, why are you doing this wicked and evil thing that has happened in the sight of God? And so beginning of verse 21, it says the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke to the heads of the families of Israel. And they said, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. Now, there's three places in the Bible where God's called that. 
Two of them are right here in Joshua. The other one's in Psalm 50 with the start of Asaph's song. It's the only three places where God is named specifically like this. And so let's kind of get some context of the use of this name. He knows and may Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or if it was an unfaithful act against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built us an altar to turn away from following the Lord or, in, uh, or if to offer a burnt offering or a grain offering on it or to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself require it. But truly we have done this out of concern for a reason saying in time to come, the sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you and the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but rather that it may be a witness between us and between you, between our generations after us, that we are to perform the service to the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings so that your sons will not say to our sons in a time to come, You have no portion in the Lord. Therefore, we have said it shall also come about if we say this to us and to our generations in time to come, then we shall say, see the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made not for burnt offerings or for sacrifices. Rather, it is a witness between us and you far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar for burnt offering or for grain offering or for sacrifice besides the altar of the Lord, our God which is in his tabernacle. And so when Phineas, the priest and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the family of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And then Phinehas and the sons of Eleazar and the priests and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben and from the sons of Gad to the land of Gilead, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the sons of Israel who were brought back with them. And we'll continue right to the end. The word pleased the sons of Israel and the sons of Israel blessed God. They did not speak of going up against the war to destroy them in the land which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us and between the Lord our God. So why would Asaph start his psalm with a very unusual, unique way of expressing the name of God? That is found only in the story of a secondary altar being built up on the other side of the Jordan River that was never intended to be an altar of sacrifice, but rather to be an altar of a witness of the unity of the people of God, even if they all don't physically dwell in the actual quote unquote promised land. Why would Asaph grab that name? Why would he start with that name? Everyone who's hearing him sing the song is going to recall that story to mind. They'll know this is the only place that God's called this. You remember that story? You remember that altar they built on the other side of the river? You remember where you know they were going to destroy them and they gave an explanation? Hey, we're not going to offer any sacrifices. This isn't an offer, uh, an altar for offering. This is an altar for witness and for unity and for thanksgiving that we are still part of the people of God, even though we don't live in the land of promise that God has given to us. That's what this altar is. 
Why would he do that? Well, as we walk through the psalm, I kind of give you a preview. Just I want you to file that in your mind that that's how that name was used. As we walk through the psalm, you will see that God makes a declaration. He does not want their burnt offerings. Which that altar where his name was called that was never meant to be an altar of burnt offerings. Asaph uses the only name of God found in the Old Testament that's not associated with burnt offerings. Because in his psalm, God is going to expressly state, I don't want your burnt offerings. You know, just like that altar that they built to me on the other side of the river. And so we're going to see that connection in just a minute. But what I want you to see that Asaph is doing is he declares this name of God and then he uses creation authority language to prepare the people for the judgment that's about to be announced. Notice what it says here at the in the middle part of verse one. It says uh, the mighty one God, the Lord has spoken. And then it says and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. That word summoned translated here in the NASB is the same word in Genesis 1 for the naming of things. So if you go back and you read Genesis 1, and it says, and he called the light day, and he called the darkness night, and he called the dry land earth, and he called the firmament above sky, and he called the firmament below the waters. That word for calling things into existence, for giving them a name because you've created them, Exact same word, not just in root, but in an actual form that's used here when he says he summoned earth and heaven. There's a creative authority that's being announced. Listen. In the life of your children. And you and those of you who have kids, you know this. In the life of your children, the greatest argument that you have for having authority over them while they're young and small is that you made them. They exist because of you as a human means from God. And and every parent in here, there was a chuckle and a nod. Because every parent in here has said some version of that to a wayward child. Looky here. I have absolute authority over your life because I made you. And you know, how do you argue with that? You don't. That's why we make that argument. And so God here in the psalm is starting with creation language. Notice what Asaph is doing. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he has spoken. He has summoned. He has called. He has creatively spoken the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. He is the one who has made us, made heaven, made earth. He is the one who has absolute authority over all things. And that's the point he's going to make in these first six verses. Look at how it unfolds. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. Again, this is that Zion connection that we've already seen with some of the Psalms from the sons of Korah. Again, intentionally pieced together for this book of Psalms. 
And we remember that this concept of Zion is God's place of sovereign reign, God's place of redemption, God's place of his display of his glory, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole earth. There is a declaration in these few verses that God is sovereignly and completely and wholly in authority over all that has been made and that lives and that moves and that has its being. Asaph is setting this psalm up for God's proper place to judge his people. Because that's the question that usually comes in. What right does God have to judge me? Every right to judge you. And of course, one of the funniest memes I've seen in years This guy has this terrified look on his face and above it, it says, people say only God can judge me. And down below it, it says, and that should terrify you. Trust me, any judgment I can give you is not going to come anywhere close to the judgment that God can give you. And Asaph is setting up God's absolute authority for judgment. And it says here that God is going to come. May God come and not keep silence. Let God speak with this authoritative power. And then he moves right into judgment. Notice what he says about God when he begins speaking in this authoritative tone. Fire devours before him. And it is very tempestuous around him. And he summons. Same word again. The heavens above. And the earth to do what? To judge his people. Pause. Whenever we get to judgment passages in the Bible, we're very quick to dismiss them. We're very quick to go, well, that's not about me. I don't don't have to face the judgment of God. I've been saved and delivered from the judgment of God. Jesus came and took my judgment and we overextend a point of what Christ has done for us. And we become dismissive of the fact that we still have to answer to the authority of God. And so here, notice what he says. He summons heavens above and the earth to do what? Judge his people. And notice who God calls to attention in these first few verses. Gather my godly ones to me. Notice he didn't say gather the wicked to me. Notice he didn't say gather the pagan to me. Notice he didn't say gather the Gentile to me. Notice he didn't say gather the one who isn't a God fearer to me. He said gather my godly ones to me. And friends, it's not for, for a family reunion. It's not a, hey, you guys want to get together and watch the game and play cornhole? No, this is not the gathering that God has for his people in this moment. It's not pleasant. He's not inviting them to the banquet table. He's not welcoming them in and saying, oh, it's so nice to see you. No, he's he's about to fire is going before him. It's tempestuous around him. And there's about to be this expression of judgment against his people. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is Judge. Now, let's pause. We're at the break point, the, the, the musical break point, the sila of the psalm. There's a pause or a crescendo or a musical interlude that's supposed to take place. 
Just reading these first six verses, I get it why David appointed Asaph to be the great songwriter and choir leader. It's super powerful stuff already. Can you imagine coming into God's temple and singing this together with the whole nation of Israel as you prepare to worship God? The mighty one God has spoken. He has summoned his people. He's called them to him. He is the righteous one. He is the righteous judge. And so what is the thing? What is it that God declares? What is the judgment that God gives? He gives a judgment both on the righteous and then there's a shift toward the end of the psalm with a judgment on the wicked. And we'll look at both of them in time. So first in verse 7, we see God's testimony against his own people. What is it that God is declaring against his own people? So notice what he's not doing. He says, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, listen, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. And notice what he's not reproving them for. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. They've been making their sacrifices like they were supposed to. God's not mad about that. Most of the time in the nation of Israel, what happens is they've abandoned the proper worship of God and they followed after idols. Not what's happened here. They're still worshiping God the right way. They're still bringing their sacrifices into the temple. They're still doing what it is that they're supposed to do. I don't reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings that are continually before me. In other words, they're doing it at all the right times and all the right places. And then God makes this declaration. He says, I will take no young bull out of your house, male goat out of your fold. And then one of the most misused verses in all of the Old Testament, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Pause. This is not what the sermon's about, but we got to fix this problem. Every time I have ever heard anybody talk about that verse, it has always been in the context of God's gracious provision and the fact that he'll supply and meet all your needs. Oh, don't worry about it. God's got the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the hills too. Right smack dab out of the middle of a judgment psalm. Has nothing to do with God's provision and has nothing to do with God meeting your needs. It has nothing to do with any of that sort of stuff. God is using that poetic descriptor to say to his people, I don't need your burnt offerings. I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need the bulls on the altar. I own all of the bulls already. If I wanted to devour them with my consuming fire that we saw a few verses before, I could burn all of them up at one time. I don't care anything about that. That is not what pleases my soul as your God. That's what that verse is about. You're bringing some offering to God, thinking you're doing God this big favor, when in fact the offering you're bringing to God is something he owned already and let you have to give back to him. That's what that's about. So look at what he says. I know every bird of all of the mountains. And listen, listen to this. Listen to this. You want to talk about the sovereignty of God and Everything that moves in the field is mine. 
I've been talking recently with someone about Abraham Kuyper, and he's got that fantastically great quote. There is not one square inch of the universe where Jesus Christ does not look at it and say, this is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that it contains. By the way, that includes you. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls? Shall I drink the blood of male goats? No, God's not going to do any of that. So what is God's indictment against the people? Why is God bringing this judgment pronouncement against his own people? God's people were not offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That Hebrew word is interesting because sacrifice of thanksgiving is actually just one word. And that one word means essentially, if you were to expand it out, a song of confessional praise. In other words, hear me this morning, because this is where it's going to get challenging. This is where I'm going to move from preaching to meddling. In other words, the people of God, the covenant people of God, were showing up at the right time, at the right place, with the right objects for worship, singing the right songs, saying the right prayers, with the right kind of priest, on the right days. And their heart was not in it. And God knows the difference. You can show up in this room all you want to. And you can sing the songs. And you can pray the prayers. And you can make the confessional statements. And you can amen the sermon. You can do all the right stuff at all the right time and all the right places. And you can walk out of here as cold and as distant and as hard against the things of God as any lost person could. What God wanted and still desires from his people is a song of confessional praise. You are my God. And I will ever praise you as God. My heart is overwhelmed with the glory of who you are. And I thank you for your grace. That's what God desires from his people. Notice. God wants them to call upon him in the day of trouble. And he will rescue them and they will honor him. That's God's indictment against his people. Cold, empty, going through the motions worship that does not resonate with the compassionate, merciful glory of God's grace in their life. That's the indictment. And friends, I want to tell you, I don't know how long ago it was that Asaph wrote this. It's a long time ago. In the galaxy far, far away. But God still calls his godly ones to him. And he still indicts them for the same thing. I don't know how many times 
in my own life, this convicting truth from God has slammed me in my spiritual chest. I don't know how many times in my life, because listen, if you've, if you've been in ministry as long as I have and you preach as many sermons as I have, it's going to happen. I've never met a pastor where this hasn't happened to them. I don't know how many times I've walked out of a room just like this one from a service just like this one, preached a sermon just like this one, heard everybody say, oh, what a great word from the Lord that was, Philip, and got to the parking lot and God hit me right in the chest with, you brought me burnt offerings and sacrifices, but you left the confessional song of praise at home and I have nothing to do with what you just did. And all you have to do is weep and repent. God, I'm so sorry that I honored you with my mouth, but my heart was far from you. Friends, it's the indictment he still brings against his people today. And then Asaph makes a shift. He makes a shift to those who are actually wicked. Not Remember, he was talking to his godly ones, and now he wants to talk to those who aren't his godly ones, to the wicked, verse 16. But to the wicked, God says this. What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For the godly ones, he doesn't indict them For speaking the truth of the covenant. He doesn't indict them for performing the right acts of worship. He doesn't indict them for the things that they ought to be doing. He indicts them for the condition of their heart. Of not truly loving and honoring God with the right things that they should be doing. Friends, hear me. It's not enough just to do the right thing. It's the story of the prodigal son. We get so hung up on the son who left and came back. That we forget that this indictment is in that story. The son who never left. He would not come and join them at the party when his lost brother returned. And the father went out to him and he said, why won't you come in with the others? Because I was always here doing all the stuff that I was supposed to do. And you never killed a fat calf for me. You never threw a party for me. In other words, I was going through all the right motions, but I wasn't doing it from the heart. I was just doing it because I wanted to get something from you. I wanted bobblehead Jesus. And friends, this indictment is right smack at the end of the story of the prodigal son with the brother who did all the right stuff, but he did it for all the wrong reasons. And God still brings this against us today, but he makes a shift off of that and he goes to the wicked and he says, listen. What right do you have to even have my covenant in your mouth? You hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. You delight in the evil of other people. Look what it says. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And I I don't want to get lost in this. But again, they've structured the order of these psalms on purpose. 49, everyone dies, even the king. Psalm 50, God brings judgment against his people. Psalm 51, David repents of adultery. Look at what Asaph says here and the way they ordered the songbook. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. 
and you associate with adulterers. Some translations have the language of you go along with and perform the acts of adulterers is a better way to translate it. David wanted him to be the lead guy. First psalm in the psalm book by him. David said, ooh, I got a great follow-up to that. And we'll see that next week. You let your mouth loose in evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own, own mother's son. Your tongue speaks lies. And I've remained silent, God says. You've done all these things and I kept silent. Listen to this. Hear me this morning. Oh, wow. Powerful stuff that Asaph tells us and writes to us here. These things you have done and I kept silence, God says. You thought that I was just like you. Friend, when you're living in your sin... And if you're unrepentant, lost in your sin, this is definitely fully 100% true of you. But if even if you're a believer and you're rebelling and you're entering into your sin. We feel the freedom to live in our sin because we do not believe that God is a righteous judge. We believe God will be self-justifying just like we are and he'll let it slide. That's why we keep on sinning. Because God keeps silent for a season and we think that we're getting away with something. We think that God is like one of the Greco-Roman gods who can't see and can't hear and can be fooled and tricked. And we think that we're pulling the wool over his eyes when in fact he sees and knows all things. Go back to the beginning of the psalm. The whole world is mine and all that it contains. And you wicked ones... You who have no place in my covenant. You who have no right to even speak the words of my covenant. You who uh, cheer on the thief and go with the adulterer and speak ill against your brother. I've kept silent and you think you're getting away with it. You think I'm just like you. And then notice what God says to them. I will reprove you. I'll state the case right before your eyes. Consider this, you who forget God. Or I will tear you in pieces. And there will be none to deliver you. Friend, you do not want to go toe to toe with God. When God remains silent for a season in your sin, it only leads to presumption on our part. Presumption upon the grace of God. And then God speaks loudly into our lives about our sin. And we have in that moment, if you're in Christ, you have in that moment... A beautiful choice because of the freedom of the Holy Spirit to repent. And if this echo rings true in your ears and you're lost. There's a declaration that God makes. Look at what God says. God himself gives a call to repentance and salvation. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving. There it is. Confessional song of praise. He who declares that I am the true God and turns from his wickedness. He honors me. And to him who orders his way aright. I will show the salvation of God. 
And friends, it is no accident. I want us to remember this when we come together next week. It is not by mistake that this is the psalm that precedes David's great confession of sin. And the display of the mercy of God for those who repent. It's an intentional setup. And so in the last couple of minutes that we have before we close, where do we see Jesus in this? Friends, Jesus is all over this. Jesus is the reason why we can have a thanksgiving, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, why we can have a confessional song of praise. If it weren't for what Jesus had done for us on the cross, there would be no hope of us turning from our sins and receiving the salvation of God. If it weren't for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us as both the just and the justifier through his gospel, through his work on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, demonstrating himself to be the son of God with power that every name, that everyone, everywhere, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And what will they confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this confession will take place in every human life. It will either take place in repentance and salvation in this current life, giving to you the inheritance of the life to come. Or it will happen one great day in judgment where finally in the consuming, tempestuous fire of God, you acknowledge God for who he is, the owner of the cattle of a thousand hills, because all that is in the world is his. And he will not share glory. Nor should he. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of both sides of what Asaph is talking about in the psalm. God is the righteous judge. God is the merciful redeemer of the sinner. Both of these collide in the world of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for powerful, challenging psalms like this one. Father, may our hearts and our minds and our souls be appropriately wrecked by the weight and the power of your glory your majesty, your sovereignty, your beauty, your truth, your splendor. Father, may we be reminded that you are in no way like us. Father, if any of us are living in ongoing sin, unrepentant sin, may we be convicted, may we be crushed, may we be moved, may we repent, may we call out for mercy, may we offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. May we offer that confessional song of praise. Father, if there are any here that you would label us among the wicked, if there are any here who have no place to take your covenant in their mouth, God, by your grace and for your glory, Remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Take the scales from their eyes and allow the veil to fall and for them to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, save lost souls. Father, continue to transform those that you have brought in to your covenant. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.